Here we go, rejecting the screen, the Going ISO edition, as we do every week with anybody and everybody who's touched the NBA in some sort of way. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, out West, Adam Stanko, also out West, Todd Kapastashi, the seven-time Emmy Award winner, the director of the 30 for 30, the Dennis Rodman 30 for 30, for better or worse, and once was described as smoother than a Rob Thomas-Santana duet in the Brown Daily Herald, which we may get to at some point. But wow, do you feel like digging in the archives there? Yeah, it's what, it's what we do here on the research <laughs> side of things. Todd, do you feel like you know Dennis Rodman? Uh, wow, that's a great question. I, no, I don't think I, I do feel like I know him. I mean, obviously, I spent 12 months, more than 12 months, sort of watching every clip that's ever existed of him from the time he was born until, you know, a couple months ago. So, you know, I know his story inside and out um which i guess what i'm about to say is kind of odd because i know his story so well but in terms of getting to know him you know and and we can talk about this at length but it's he's a hard guy to get to know i mean he he was different every time i met him he would go from super super quiet and awkward to you know telling crazy sex stories at at a lunch so you know no, I guess is the answer. I think he was such a hard guy to get a handle on in my personal interactions with him and a, a super sweet guy and wanted, I think really wanted to do a good job, which is a weird thing to say, but he wanted to do a good job with the interviews for his 30 for 30. He knew it was like an important thing and an important legacy thing for him. So he tried really hard, which was nice and sweet. Um, but, you know, he's he's a different cat and, and has a different personality and has obviously some demons and insecurities. And so I think that sort of made it a little difficult to get to know him over kind of the process. So, Todd, first of all, I'm so glad that you're on the podcast because obviously you and I go way back, which we'll we'll get into a little bit later. But but you just brought it up, the the idea that you don't know him. So if you don't know him after after spending all that time watching all those clips, talking to a bunch of people, who does? Yeah, I mean, I, I should – let me, you know, preface that, though, with just saying I, I know his story so well, and I think I do know, you know, maybe better than a lot of people because I spent so much time thinking about it and talking to other people. I think I understand him pretty well, and I understand his story and sort of what he went through and why he sort of turned out um, the way he was and why all the, the things that he sort of went through, you know, why, why that happened. I, I think I understand that. I just think that – my personal sort of relationship with him, which, you know, I think too, that people out there might not understand it's we had maybe five or six, three hour interviews. And then obviously some sort of just chill time to, to get to know each other a little bit, but you're not spending a ton, ton, ton of time with the subject. You know, I don't know how much time Jason Hare spent with Jordan for a, a 10 hour thing, but you know, ours was 102 minutes and we got a, a good amount of time with Dennis. And like I said, he wanted to make it great, but you know, in terms of the personal time spent with him, it wasn't probably even enough to, to really, really, really get to trust each other and get to know each other enough for, I think, the question you're asking. But I will say that I, I do feel like I understand Dennis really well and sort of, again, what he went through and, and, and why he sort of had these different kind of stops in the NBA and different kind of sagas in his life. So speaking of The Last Dance, I know that you haven't seen the, the Rodman episode yet. But were you involved at all? Did, did Jason talk to you about Dennis and any sort of involvement? No, you know, we didn't. It's interesting because we were, I don't exactly know when he 
our projects overlapped a lot in terms of like when they were being produced. Um, I know Jason was like doing a lot. I mean, they interviewed a hundred people. So he was obviously working on that project while we were doing Rodman and we didn't have any contact. I know ESPN, it was a conversation like, Hey, we're doing a 10 hour thing on the bulls and you're doing a standalone 30 for 30 on, on one of the you know, most interesting and famous bulls. So there has to be a conversation about that. And there were, mm-hmm. but there actually weren't big ones. I mean, I think they knew that we were getting more into kind of the psychology of Dennis and um, weren't necessarily going super basketball heavy on the Bulls. And I, I think, you know, once we gave them our rough cut and they realized that, you know, our Bulls segment was probably only like 12 minutes um, and it wasn't really inside basketball stuff that they were like, oh, great, because, you know, the the last dance is going to get into a lot of the sort of inside stories on sort of the bulls with, with Michael and all that stuff. So I, I think they're a good compliments to each other. I assume I've, I've talked to a lot of people who watched it. One of the producers, Matt left who worked on it, um, our doc with me really intimately watched it and said, you know, it's, it's great. It was great for us too, because people, you know, he said on Twitter, a lot of people were saying, Oh, check out the Rodman 30 for 30. If you want more on mm-hmm. the psychology or to really dive deep into it. So I think what's great about the last dance is people are, you know, ours came out in September and I think, you know, six months later, whatever it is, people are rediscovering the, the, the Rodman 30 for 30, which is awesome. Cause I think a lot of people, because of the last dance wanted to go a little deeper, which you know, Jason couldn't do that in a, you know, a 12, 15 minute segment on, on Dennis and, and that doc. So um, it's awesome. People are kind of rediscovering uh, the, for better or worse. What did Rodman think of the 30 for 30? <laughs> What's funny is, and I should probably follow up on this, he hadn't seen it, um, which is, you know, his agent watched it and like a lot of the people who were involved in it on, on sort of his end watched it and, you know, had some great feedback and they all really loved it. His camp sort of like loved it, um, but he he didn't watch it. And then even at the premiere, he came to the premiere and sort of, you know, we chatted and he's like, hey, man, yeah, like I haven't I haven't watched this shit yet. I'm like, oh, <laughs> like, are you going to watch, you know, tonight? He's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can. So he kind of he came and stood in the back for like the first like two minutes and then, and then left the screening and then obviously came back for kind of the after chat thing. But I don't know to this day if he's seen it. I mean, I, I would guess that he has, but, um, and I think the reason for that is I think it's hard for him to watch confront a lot of these things. I mean, look, that this wasn't a basketball only doc. We got into, mm-hmm. we interviewed his mom and his daughter who he sort of, you know, abandoned and his kids and his ex-wife and, got into a lot of stuff that I wouldn't, if a documentary was made about me like that, I wouldn't want to sit through it. It'd be really hard. And, and, you know, it obviously says something too about just the emotional scars he still has with, with all this stuff that's sort of plagued him. But um, I, yeah, to answer your question, I don't know what he thinks of it. I don't know that he's seen it. All right. Uh, Todd, how did this whole thing come about? Someone I used to work with that he's a former ESPN employee and he actually was the executive producer of Pony Excess, which is a sort of beloved 30 for 30 from mm-hmm. the first round of them on the SMU sort of death penalty. Um, he and I worked together at Fox. And when we both left Fox, we were sort of looking for a project to do together. And he had, you know, obviously the connections for with the 30 for 30 ESPN films people. And I, it was sort of a dream of mine since starting at ESPN, you know, when I was 22 to, one day direct a 30 for 30. So we started to sort of brainstorm ideas about who would be a good one. We threw out, you know, the Dallas Cowboys, the nineties Cowboys, which I still would love to do um, a doc on that. I think it would be really interesting. Um, that sort of, for whatever reason, didn't work out. And then uh, a guy named Doug Banker, who has a production company of his own, 
um, approached Mike and said, Hey, I know the, you know, Rodman and his, his guys, and they've, they've been interested for a while to maybe try to start pitching a 30 for 30, you know, what do you think? And so um, basically Doug, Mike and I started kind of brainstorming what the approach would be, because that's the big thing with ESPN. You know, you could throw any big name athlete at them and they're going to say, well, you know, what's your take on it or what's going to be different about Mm -hmm. sort of how you tell the story. Um, so we, you know, threw a bunch of different ideas and decks at them and sort of ways to approach a story. And eventually after, you know, a few months, they really liked one of them and, and greenlit the project. So, you know, that's how that kind of started. Get more from Todd in a moment, but first let me tell you about one of the ultimate life hacks. It's hard even now to find the time to sit down, read, learn more. It was weeks ago on the podcast that I said, you can so easily tell on Twitter who has kids, who doesn't during this isolation quarantine time. Well, if you do, <laughs> then you certainly don't have the time to sit down and read. So when you don't have that free time, you can't read or work on certain things. And this app solves that problem. I recommend it. It's called Blinkist. It's really unique and it works on your phone, tablet, web browser. It takes the best key takeaways the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and then condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. They've got all sorts of things like this is your brain on sports, the science of underdogs, the value of rivalry and what we can learn from the t-shirt canon. That was from John Wertheim and Sam Summers. There's just so many other categories of books that you can dive into. And with Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to their massive library of condensed nonfiction books. So it's all the books you want, all for one low price. Right now, limited time Blinkist special offer. Go to Blinkist.com slash NBA. Try it for free seven days. Save 25% off your new subscription. Blinkist, that's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash NBA. Start your free seven-day trial. Also, you'll save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash NBA. Blinkist.com slash NBA. In, in Last Dance, Carmen Electra was, had a few wow moments. Why wasn't she in, included in the 30 for 30? Well, it's interesting. Like, we initially reached out to her, you know, the way this goes, you obviously have a big list of people you'd love to interview who are important to the mm-hmm. story and you, you start to reach out to them and reach out to some of agents, some of, you know, publicists who you reach out to. And we had a kind of an ongoing conversation with her about doing it. And at first it was sort of like, ah, no, you know, like we she's talked about it enough. And I don't know if it was before or after she did the last dance, but it was sort of a mm-hmm. no for a while. And we kept kind of just producing the doc and then as we went along, and I don't know if she got word of other people we had interviewed or, you know, I, I don't know what word got to sort of her camp, but there was a weird change of heart sort of at the end. And it was like, hey, like, Carmen's willing to do it if, if you guys, you know, want to have her. And at that point, and if you sort of have watched the doc or re- remember it, the Carmen Electra sort of segment, I guess, of the documentary got whittled down so much to that sort of era of his life got whittled down to like two sentences of Jamie Foxx track that it didn't, Mm -hmm. we didn't need her, I guess, at that point, we just sort of diminished that little era of his life, partially because we knew again, the last dance was going to get into a lot of that sort of post bull stuff and probably have a segment on her. Um, So it just wasn't needed. And it's just, that's one of the things with these docs is 
102 minutes seems like a lot, but when you have an entire life and one as crazy as sort of Dennis's has been, it's hard to cram all that stuff in. So right. unfortunately the Carmen stuff got um, whittled down so much where we didn't really need her interview. Um, same thing with like Mark, we interviewed Mark Cuban for a really long time and he was awesome and um, told some great stories about Dennis and his, you know, wanted to wear number 69. And there's this, story about how you know Mark Cuban ordered 200,069 jerseys and then Dennis was walking out of the tunnel and an official came up to him and said you can't you know dude the NBA came down and said you can't wear that number and so you know uh, <laughs> Cuban has like hundreds of thousands of 69 Rodman Mavericks jerseys somewhere in like a basement um, but yeah oh. stories like that there's a lot of good and actually another good great Cuban story is he Dennis lived in Cuban's pool house during the first sort of few months, well, he was only there a couple months, but his sort of time in uh, Dallas, he lived with Mark Cuban. And obviously, uh, needless to say, Mark had some funny stories about parties being thrown and, you know, all that stuff. So a lot of good stuff, unfortunately, hit the cutting room floor. But, you you know, you sort of weigh the, are we really getting something interesting about Dennis out of some of these stories? And we try to include as much of the kind of salacious stuff as we could with still kind of getting at the important parts of the story. All right, so what were some of those, um, and uh, you can go deeper into the Cuban stuff if you want, but what were some of those stories that, that did hit the cutting room floor that that are awesome or, or were too salacious to put in an ESPN 30? <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, we, we've had sections on his, more sections on his sex life. I mean, obviously, the sort of prowess of being, you know, in Chicago during that time and going, it, it's not like Dennis was going out once a week either. It's like, you know, the... <laughs> like fish in a barrel sort of thing. He was going out almost every single night as one of the most popular athletes in Chicago. You know, he argued he was more popular than Jordan for mm-hmm. a time in Chicago. You can debate that, but yeah, he was going out every single night and obviously like having a lot of fun. So a lot of the sort of, you know, sex story stuff hit the, hit the, hit the floor. I mean, he, his bodyguard described a lot of stories where with him and Carmen, actually, that they'd go to the Berto center, which is, you know the the training facility for the I don't know if this was in the last dance or not but they'd go to the Berto Center and have sex and the bodyguard said on drives home from the club they'd have sex in the car with him driving home so there's a lot of the sort of just Dennis being crazy they for a while in Chicago had a tour bus that they rented because so many people in Dennis's entourage were going out every night so the entourage went you know when he first got to Chicago to three or four people and it grew to like 20 people every night that would be going out with Dennis. And so they got a tour bus and there's a lot of stories of just George, who's his, his bodyguard when he was in Chicago, just, you know, Dennis being passed out drunk, you know, with girls in the, in the um, tour bus. So it's a lot of crazy stories, especially from the bulls era um, that sort of didn't make it. Cause we just didn't get into a ton of the bull stuff. Cause we knew it was going to be in the last dance. You know, shit's really crazy when you can just yada, yada, yada over, uh, yeah, the girls are just like passed out in the tour bus. They had a tour bus. And <laughs> just, yeah, you can just yada, yada, yada over that stuff. Um, on a on another note, but related, of course, to his lifestyle, you surprised he's still alive? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people we interviewed, you know, said they are surprised he's still alive. And that just speaks to, I mean, it's weird to say, but it speaks to the athlete he was. I mean, anyone, I mean, he was in the craziest shape when he was especially when he was in Chicago and he worked out mm-hmm. so much and we tried to cover that in the doc this crazy routine that he had where he'd you know go to practice and 
lift weights before and after practice. And then he'd go home and literally just go out and wouldn't come home till three in the morning. And sometimes, you know, his bodyguard said he'd get a call at three in the morning or a knock on his door saying, you know, we're going to the Berto center to like lift weights at like three in the morning. And Dennis is like still kind of drunk and sort of (laughs) getting over his drunken state from the night before. And so he just had this insane sort of level of energy that, you know, I think probably saved his life in his later years because he still was pretty fit, I think, in his kind of Newport Beach, like really sort of alcoholism setting in days um, that it didn't kill him. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think any normal person, just the level of drinking he was doing post being an athlete, you know, would have killed most people. Todd, it's funny. We we interviewed Allah Abdul-Nabi recently, and he told the story about Rodman and how Allah's like best game as a pro early on was against the Pistons. And he was all proud of himself for going for like 20 and 10. Meanwhile, Rodman had like 20 and 20 that night. And after the game, Rodman's on, on the bike going on an incline full speed. And Allah's like, I'm never going to be that. So I'm, I'm curious around the guys that you interviewed and you interviewed everybody for that, for that Rodman doc, how much were they amazed at the, athlete that that Dennis was I mean they were you know he's to everyone he's the most incredible athlete they've ever seen I mean he like you said he's I mean he's getting he's drinking 20 beers at a bar and then at three in the morning deciding to go and like lift weights for an hour and like hit the bike and then he'll go to sleep for two hours and then practice with like the 98 Chicago Bulls which I would imagine those practices were pretty competitive um, and, you know, playing a game and then going out again, it's just, you know, I'm, and he was older too. I mean, when he was in Chicago, he wasn't, you know, in his twenties, he was in well into his thirties and it's, I'm 36 and I have more than three beers and I can't get up in the morning. So I, it just, it just speaks to the, and that's what everyone said. It's just, he was, he was superhuman. He literally was superhuman. Not only what he did on the court, but the lifestyle that he sort of maintained while, while playing that well. Uh, speaking of the lifestyle, what do you know about the the Vegas trip that he took during the season in 98 that was documented in The Last Dance? Well, the, the, the question that I had was there was actually, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there's a 30 for 30 short called um, Wally and the Worm, which actually Colin Hanks directed um, Tom. No, Stein. I haven't. And it's really great. It's like an animated I don't know if it's exactly that trip, but um, there's a trip that where Dennis basically got injured um and wasn't traveling with the team and phil sort of approved this trip where dennis could sort of kind of do what he wants for like a weekend or this like five day span um but he assigned uh, i mean the details of this aren't going to be great but his one of these sort of low level um trainers that the bulls had and his name was wally he assigned wally to basically watch Dennis for this weekend and they went to Vegas together so I'm not exactly <laughs> sure if it's that I don't think it was that or not but um Mm-mm. yeah I mean there were the thing about Dennis that's tough too and I think which was one of the challenges with the 30 for 30 is that he had so many stories but I, I do think and this is natural I mean he's in his 50s and he's been through a, a ton in his life and and there's so many stories that some of them got jumbled. So there were a lot of Vegas stories that he told, but I think for him, all of them ran together. Like he, he had told a story where that was in the last dance, but slightly different where Phil Jackson 
after a Vegas trip, went to his apartment and like kind of broke in and like woke him up. But in the last dance, I saw that Michael sort of told that story as if it was, you know, it was Michael going and waking him up. So mm-hmm. I think for Dennis, some of these stories, whether it was Phil or Michael or Horace or Steve Kerr kind of waking him up, he forgets, but he knows he's sort of been through all this crazy stuff in his life. So, um, but yeah, I don't know the, the specifics of that 98 kind of weekend in Vegas. Dennis, to me, like I, I think about him in the last decade and I think about the celebrity rehab stuff and his stint with Dr. Drew and all that kind of stuff. How did you guys decide to draw the line between showcasing in a way what he was doing, his off-court lifestyle, and like not sensationalizing sensationalizing the fact that he's an alcoholic? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, that's a great question. And I think the bigger thing that we struggled with or I personally struggled with is you know, we wanted part of the approach could have been, Hey, why don't we like follow Dennis around for, and I I think he would have let us do that. If we said, Hey, Dennis, we're just going to kind of be a fly on the wall with you for, you know, a couple of weeks and see what your lifestyle is like now. And you've seen, you know, 30 for thirties that do that. And and the one that's coming out on Lance Armstrong does a great job of, of sort of following Lance and seeing what his life is like now. And that could have been an approach. I just think that, like you said, his life, we, you wanted to not make the doc a reality show and sort of this low brow kind of like, he's this drunken mess and he parties and has sex. And that's part of the reason too, we didn't include some of the sex stuff and didn't include a lot of the, the crazy drinking stories is because we're kind of teetering on this line of you really do want people to kind of try to understand Dennis, but he had this crazy life and it was sensational. And the drinking of, of course is, is sad and, and, but it's a hard thing to have like a high-end documentary with these elements of sort of reality because we even used ESPN did this show, which is kind of interesting in itself called Rodman on the rebound, which I guess the story goes that it was when Rodman was trying to make his, his comeback to the NBA and it was just a complete disaster. And he was in the midst of his alcoholism and, and never, he got in this, you know, motorcycle accident in Las Vegas and, and it never happened. But I guess David Stern saw it and was like, you guys, this is ESPN. You guys can't like air this, you know, it makes the NBA look bad and there's all these like NBA people in it. And so ESPN aired it at like midnight and no one saw it. So we had the footage, which was great, but again, it, it felt like a reality show. So I think for us, the, the sort of dilemma, or I guess the challenge was, you know, presenting the doc in a way where people would understand Dennis. I mean, it was entertaining, but it, it didn't become the sort of, like you said, Dr. Drew kind of reality thing. Because we had all those clips, too. And Dennis says interesting stuff about alcoholism on those clips. But, you know, it's just it wasn't the route we really wanted to take. And we're trying to elevate the content that we had beyond kind of reality. And, and that clip was in Last Dance. The, oh, it was. Yeah, yeah. The motorcycle crash that he was, and, oh, and yeah. he, was supposed, he was supposed to work out for, supposed to try out with Denver. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that, that was, was that was Mellow's, I think, rookie year. Mm-hmm. Would have been interesting <laughs> yeah. to see them on a team together. Yeah. Um, being being a husband, what's it like sitting there interviewing his kids, and then thinking about the lack of relationship and responsibility that he took and takes for his kids, and also his exes. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it was those interviews weren't easy. You, you saw the pain in his daughter, especially his oldest daughter, Alexis, who was, she was so awesome. She initially, you know, didn't really want to do the interview. And, you know, you have these conversations with, with these people and it's hard because 
in one sense, the doc's better because she's in it. And I know that it's going to be better with her in it. But I also have to recognize that that's a human being who doesn't want to go on camera and sort of spill all this emotion about her father and his lack of presence in her life. Um, so those interviews are hard and it's, it's angering. I mean, in some of the interviews, you know, I'm talking to the producer, or the, the DP on the project, and we're all having conversations about being angry at Dennis. Like, why, you know, who does that to their kids or who doesn't? But, you know, until you walk in someone's shoes, you don't really know why. And obviously we know now, especially with, you know, mental health stuff in the last 10 years, I think people are understanding more about that, that, you know, Dennis didn't just wake up and decide I'm not going to be a good husband or a father. I think it was a, a you know, a result of things that likely happened in his childhood that are, are pretty complex. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think to answer your question, it was hard doing those interviews and you get mad at the subject of the documentary, but you also want to present it in a way that's not killing Dennis because there's two sides to these stories. And Dennis did have a difficult you know, life in a lot of ways and, and had just trouble connecting with, with his wives. And, you know, he, even in his interview, when he's talking about Michelle, who is his kind of last wife, um, he was like, well, you know, I was rich and I was fun and I was having these parties and Michelle loved that. And she got involved with me and knew who I was. And there is that element to it. That's not wrong, but you know, it, it was hard to sort of, especially with, um, with Alexis to sit through kind of mm -hmm. the, the description of like not having a dad in her life. Those were, those were hard. Yeah. They were angering. Yeah. It was, it was, it was heartbreaking watching and even knowing Dennis's backstory and learning so much through the doc thinking, God, just grow up. But then you know what has happened in his life. But then you also know people that have turned their lives around. It just doesn't happen for everybody. So I want to I want to transition. At, at the top, you said you were you're once described as smoother than a Rob Thomas Santana duet in the in the Brown Daily Herald, and that was at the end of your own columns that you were writing. So <laughs> it, it says um, Todd Capistachi, oh seven as smooth smoother than a rob thomas santana duet so where did that come from you know i that's it's gonna sound like i'm passing the buck but that was clearly the editor of the brown daily Herald <laughs> giving people taglines so i don't i have it's no a great idea song you know what? it was so long ago though who knows maybe i did come up with that but i i just i hope not i hope i didn't write that about myself uh, todd would never say anything that glowing about himself i can't imagine that he well no i would but it would be you know more clever than that i think people picked up that i was being sarcastic Todd. Uh, so it's it's fine oh uh, we it's so the story with with todd and i as he Todd and I met when when Todd first started at at ESPN, and I was a little bit older than than Todd was at the time. Um, I know this because of our time together, but I knew you always wanted to get into to music videos. I know that was a dream of yours since you were at Brown, and then coming to ESPN. You also you just said that like thirty for thirties. That was that was a dream too. Like, what was the vision, and how were you trying to get there when you first were starting your career out? You mean to go from sort of you know, starting at ESPN to the 30 for 30? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I went to ESPN, and you know this about me, Adam. I, I do love sports, and I think they're really important to society, and, you know, they're a good release for people and a distraction. And I, I do – I love the stories that come from sports, obviously, but I am more into, the, like, the human interest side of it. Like, I, I would do a doc on 
anyone. It doesn't have to be in, in sports. So I think I started ESPN feeling like, okay, I love sports, but like, I want to get into the storytelling part of it. And that took a while, you know, as you know, Adam, navigating such a large ship as ESPN can be sometimes daunting and take a while. Um, So I think it took me probably, and also it was 2008 when, you know, there was freezes in terms of positions and all that stuff. It was a difficult time, I think, to be a graduate and start your career in, you know, 2007, 2008. But aside from that, I think I, I finally, after about two or three years at ESPN, got into sort of the feature feature producing side of it where I could tell stories and um, combine sort of what I felt was my creative style with sort of storytelling. Um, and then I think just honing that over maybe three or four years doing, you know, college game day features, doing NBA features, cutting teases for the NBA. I was sort of, you know, working that part of the brain for three or four years, trying to understand what my style is and, and, you know, all the, all the time work my way up sort of the ESPN ladder to try to get bigger, bigger projects and bigger features and all that stuff. So, you know, my progression was just PA to working on the NBA shows to then doing features for, three, four, five years at ESPN and then leaving to come to LA and do the same thing for Fox. Um, and then, you know, as a freelancer, kind of describe the the situation with my former boss at Fox and then, you know, him being involved with ESPN films and 30 for 30 and us sort of developing that. So um, it was a long, you know, it's, things take a long time. It's like you start, I started at 22 grinding away, always knowing I want to do, you know, a feature length documentary and it took till I was, you know, 34 or 35. So it's a long run, but, um, you know, it felt good to do a 30 for 30 and, and I loved my time at ESPN and be able to do something kind of at that, that point, it was the biggest thing in my career doing that 30 for 30. So it was awesome to kind of check that off and, and hit that landmark. Well, as you know, Adam's still dreaming about playing in the NBA. So <laughs> <laughs> your dream, your dream came true. You made that a reality. Yeah. Yeah, oh, don't I don't know. Adam's dream could still come true. You don't know. I was going to say, thank you, Todd. Don't crush my dreams. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll, continue, I'll continue to crush them. How long we got on this podcast? The Your time at ESPN working on the NBA side, who were the analysts that you're working with? Yeah, that was – so it was a cool crew. It was Wilbon, um, John Barry. Well, Stu Scott was the host, and then Wilbon, John Barry, and Magic Johnson. So that was a really cool kind of crew to work with, really interesting crew. And we got to travel for the NBA Finals a bunch of years. I saw – I mean, that was – looking back, I mean, I loved sort of the grind and the hard work to go from, you know, starting there to, you know, eventually doing a 30 for 30 10 years later. But when I look back, my the most fun I had was on sort of those NBA shows, on NBA Countdown for – I guess it was probably 2008, 9, and 10. so got to see some really cool finals, Lakers, Celtics, Magic mm-hmm. Lakers. And then uh, last year, I guess I was on the NBA. I did the, um, Heat. yeah, like, but I also, I, I guess I did it later too. Cause I did the heat Maverick series too. In 11. On NBA okay. Yeah. And 11. Yeah, so. yeah. What was it like being a fly on the wall with those guys? Yeah, I mean, as an NBA fan, it's just crazy to be like in a room. And Adam knows this, you know, the first day you walk into a meeting and Magic Johnson is like giving you his take on LeBron or something. It's just you sort of you can't speak. <laughs> um, it's pretty intimidating. But yeah, even in Stu, too, you know, he he was a legend even at that point when I was working on it. So that I mean, that crew was big. I mean, in subsequent years, they've you know, try to make it more fun. And, you know, I think it's a great show still, but that was like a pretty prestigious, um, you know, 
crew of people who are working on that show. So it was pretty incredible to to witness kind of the work the work that they put in to make that show great. And then just again hearing Magic talk about anything was really fun. What what was some of the stuff that people you know that look Noah's in the the TV business. I am you you are. But but for people that aren't, what are some of the coolest things that you got a chance to see, whether it was on the road or or in those meeting rooms? Yeah, I think as a huge NBA fan, and you again, Adam, you know this, and sitting in whatever meetings, NBA fast break or you know shows that that you were on back in the day, just hearing the, it's like the process I went through when I interviewed fifty people about Dennis. It's like every guy had some awesome little tidbit about Dennis and these sort of insider stories that no one gets to hear. And I think sitting in those meetings to hear, you know, Rick Carlisle was on, I think NBA fast break for a long time when I was on it before he got back into coaching. And he had a ton of fun stories just about just the way the NBA works that you wouldn't know if you sort of weren't sitting in these meetings. And, you know, Legler was in all these meetings and, um, you know, Jalen Rose and just hearing, these old stories about sort of 80s 90s basketball from those guys is you know no one gets to hear those things so that's that's why when you're 25 and everyone knows you work at ESPN and you're at a bar and your old friends are asking you <laughs> stories about you know what do you know about this or what do you know about that or tell me the best story about you know Jalen Rose um you know that that's that was the most fun part obviously of working there all right so what's the best story about Jalen Rose <laughs> well you know what's funny about What's funny about Jalen Rose is I lived when I first uh, started ESPN. I lived in a house, and Adam knows this, with like three or three other guys who, you know, were associate producers or whatever we were at the time. We lived in a house in West Hartford, and we had a party. I think it was a Halloween party one night, and Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't know Jalen that well at the time, um, but he showed up to this party. Um, again, at 23 or however old we were, and we're having a, a stupid Halloween party at our crummy house in West Hartford, and like Jalen Rose shows up. And what's really funny too is there was this. We had this poster, and I would love to find it. It was like an 80s NBA poster that was like cartoon characters of like it was like Larry Bird as a cartoon and Jordan as a cartoon, and had all these players, and it was like a collage of players. And he was on the poster that we had on our wall, which I didn't even know that he was on it. But I remember him like standing in front of this poster, pointing himself out, and it's just how did Jalen you know, Rose get on a poster with Bird and? Magic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know why he was on there. It was like a history of the NBA. I don't know. I don't know why you know uh, Jalen would be on that, but yeah, him showing up to a Halloween party um, in West Hartford was just a funny. It, it really was. I mean, the, the the one for me, I actually have a Jalen Rose one. I remember being in a meeting with him. And at one point, the coolest moments for me were like the meeting would just sort of end and guys, Byron Scott or Jalen or somebody would start telling stories or we'd, they'd talk about a player they didn't like or what have you. And I remember just asking Jalen, I go, Jalen, I'm curious, like after Chris Weber's timeout, he never seemed to be the same. And this was before their 30 for 30 had come out. I was like, he never seemed to be the same in terms of late game situations. Like he always seemed to be a guy that didn't want to catch the ball in the post and passed it up when he had opportunities. I was like, do you think that changed Chris Weber forever? And he's like, oh, absolutely. There's no question. Like he was never the same guy mentally after that. And I'm thinking like, whoa, he's never going to say this again. And granted, they sort of implied some of that in the, in the 30 for 30. But I just yeah. found those moments to be just the absolute coolest that you had a chance to just ask these guys questions that like, and stories that we can't tell. And then there's stuff, you know, Chris Mullen coming and playing intramural hoops with us, stuff like that. that was just crazy. <laughs> right. crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, th- that's the thing, too. You start to understand when you work in TV is that there's things, there's personality, that people have a certain personality on TV and they say certain things on TV and then there's just things that they can't say because, you know, Jalen has a relationship, I'm sure, still with Chris Webber and he doesn't want to, like, look like that guy who's, like, airing out this sort of opinion. But then, you know, when you're in a meeting with them, like you said, you can sort of ask these questions and get real answers and it's crazy. You're an Ohio guy. When was the first time you saw LeBron play? So I saw LeBron play my his freshman year in high school. So I saw mm-hmm. him my sophomore year because I'm a year older. So my friend, it's crazy. My, so my friend, I'm going to plug him here, but my best friend from high school, Brandon Staley, just got the defensive coordinator job with the uh, Los Angeles Rams. So congratulations mm-hmm. to him. Oh, but wow. Congrats. We actually went and saw LeBron play, I think, in Canton in the regional final. So he, they were playing um, a pretty big kind of powerhouse Cleveland school, uh, St. Joe's. Um, And yeah, he was, he was incredible. Um, And you sort of knew, obviously, I mean, this is, (laughs) I'm not breaking news here, but yeah, you knew when he was a a freshman in high school that he was, he was going to be incredible. So what was that buzz buzz like? So you're a sophomore in high school, how far away from St. Vincent, St. Mary? were you and and what yeah can you describe the buzz at that time when he was just a freshman yeah i mean it, it, i think at that I, and you know maybe i'm just saying this to make myself feel like you know i knew before anyone and obviously he was even as a freshman people knew about him but i think the i think the buzz i mean i we drove brandon and i drove probably an hour i mean st Vincent st mary's is in akron obviously and i'm on sort of the east side of cleveland so we were about an hour from st Vincent st mary's and then canton is you know, an hour, hour and a half from where I was. So we, you know, we were like, Hey, we got a, this LeBron dude is getting so much sort of regional, I would say at that point buzz, unless you were like a really heavy basketball insider. I don't think, you know, people in New York really knew who LeBron James was at that point. Um, But, you know, we heard he was this incredible talent and, you know, Brandon and I hopped in the car, drove an hour and a half and and went and saw him play. And I don't regret that for a second because it was cool to see him so young and um you know before he had that body too because he was still kind of skinny uh 15 year old at that point but um yeah it was was really cool that we got to see him that early on thought if you could do one lebron james project what would it be you know what i always thought it would be interesting to do and i don't know that they'd ever do it but i do think the the um decision is such an interesting little moment in time um, and I think it speaks to a lot of his transformation and, you know, why he did did the decision and what went into the decision to leave Cleveland in the first place and then, you know, go to Miami and then come back. I think doing like a decision doc, I think would be pretty interesting. But I also wouldn't mind 10 years from now doing a 10 hour thing on LeBron, which I'm sure will happen. <laughs> so you can yeah sign me up for the, the 10 hour LeBron project uh, for ESPN. All right, so now you're on the record. So now I think. Yeah, exactly. I have to do it now. I have to do it. Yeah, sure. Uh, do you think that doc? So if if there was one on the decision, do you think it could be deemed a successful documentary if you couldn't get LeBron to say, "I wouldn't have done it that way if I was doing it again"? Yeah, I mean, I think he's kind of said that though, hasn't he? I mean. I feel like he's been asked that so many times and I think his stock answer is sort of that, right? Yeah, I just I don't I don't think I've ever heard him say it explicitly. 
Yeah, I mean, I like, don't think that's, that's ever not how I would have done it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the answer is yes. I think you would have to get him to sort of really be honest about. And yeah, I think you have to interview his whole. I mean, I think, you know, people say Maverick Carter was sort of really influential on that. And, you know, I would love to hear what he has to say candidly about the decision. Maybe he's spoken about that. I don't know. But um, I think getting the whole sort of backstory of that and how it affected him and his return and all that is really interesting. Since LeBron has his own production company and so many other guys do as well as a documentarian, how do you view the quote unquote documentaries that come out? I I remember watching that Kevin Durant one on Showtime a few years ago. And I was like, someone said, Oh, did you see the Durant doc? I said, it's an infomercial. How, How do you view those that come from the player's own production company? I agree. I mean, I think it's tough. I mean, you know, on one hand, the whole point of like uninterrupted, for instance, is it's the sort of athlete has control over the message and all that. But, you know, like you're saying, does that just become an infomercial? It is hard. I mean, you want athletes to sort of have a say in how they're portrayed. And I think athletes and entertainers for years and years and years have had kind of the production element out of their hands to the point where you know, I, I know athletes all the time watch documentaries and they say, well, wait, I, I gave a, a 30 second answer and you cut it into eight and made me sound like I'm saying something completely different. Or, you know, the director has a bias and he put this bite in instead of that and made me look this way. And, you know, I think giving that back to athletes isn't bad, but I don't disagree with you that, yeah, a, a Kevin Durant doc that Kevin Durant is directing or has a heavy influence on you know, is, I don't know that that's that valuable to a sports fan or, you know, to to just doc documentary. Um, So it's hard. I mean, I'm split on that, but I I think I would sort of side a little more with you that I don't think it's, it's great to have a documentary that's (laughs) produced and, and kind of guided by the athlete themselves. That being said, what's, what's the first step after you decide what you're going to do? the documentary on that you've already said, all right, we're, we're in, we're doing this. What's then step one for getting this thing created? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just the style of it. I mean, I think especially for Rodman, it was like, we didn't want to do, you know, 30 for thirties are awesome. I mean, they're so good and all of them are so good. Um, But I think we wanted to say, Hey, Dennis was a different cat and his story is pretty crazy. Let's do something a little wackier. Um, and outside the box. And I think for, for this specifically for Dennis, it was like, okay, we got the green light. Now, how do we tell this story in a way that, that sort of makes sense for him? Um, and, you know, coming up with kind of, okay, are we going to break the fourth wall? And we're going to have these little bits within the dock that sort of lightens things up. And you kind of never know what you're going to get out of the dock. One minute it's serious. And the next you're sort of joking about something one second, it's a sex story. And then he's talking about, you know, not being a good father to his kids. So I think, that's the first step is deciding what the tone is and how you're going to jump from these, from these three different topics. And, you know, I I would say I'm proud of, you know, what we delivered to ESPN because it was a little bit off brand for them, but I think people still appreciated it and and liked it. I know ESPN was very supportive and kind of kudos to them too, for buying into the approach that we took. All right. A few quick hits before our final rejecting the screen question. Like we ask every guest. So some quick hits that may not, provide for quick answers, but kind of unrelated questions. Did you try to get Kim Jong-un for the documentary? <laughs> we actually 
didn't. We did. If these are quick hitters, then the answer is no. But we, <laughs> yeah, I don't think we. It just that just seemed not feasible. And you know, at the end of a documentary, when you're like coming in every day at 5 a.m. and leaving uh-huh. at 11 p.m. and <laughs> trying to clear footage and figure out music and give you know address notes like landing Kim Jong Un as an interview subject was just like not in the cards. And how about Madonna? Yeah, we reached out to Madonna and. I, I I don't know if it was a no or we just like never got an answer back, but yeah, that didn't happen. So when you're casting for the guy oh, but, who's going to, Oh, Adam, sorry to interrupt you, but what's interesting of Madonna's story is we had, so, you know, if you watch the doc, we have these kind of like little interstitial bits in to kind of keep the mood light and to mm-hmm. kind of energize the doc. And for one of the bits, a lot of them got cut, obviously, and you know ESPN would go a certain distance with us in terms of yeah. creativity, but at certain points dialed it back. But one of the bits we had was we had my wife, who you know from the back she's blonde and she's you know about Madonna's sort of height, I guess. So we did this bit where we shot my wife walking into like this big sort of important-looking studio building from behind, and. Uh-huh. You know, walking through the bowels of like essentially setting up that like this is Madonna we had her getting out of like a g-wagon and all this stuff and had a bodyguard with her and there were paparazzi ah, so it was basically yeah, the cool. scene scene where Madonna supposedly was arriving to be interviewed and the voiceover was sort of like you know we've heard from Dennis and all these people about his relationship now it's time to hear from you know Madonna get it straight from the mouth of Madonna and mm. how this all went down and then the camera kind of pans around and we cut away and and the voiceover was like guys do you think we actually landed Madonna for this documentary right. we couldn't even get Greg Popovich that was like the line because Greg Popovich <laughs> wouldn't do wouldn't do an interview so that was the line and they were ESPN was kind of like yeah, I think they liked it but you know we had to we had to cut some of those little things out for time oh, that's so. funny so we didn't that's get Madonna amazing. but we got my wife to play Madonna and we had a funny sort of line about greg popovich there so that's um, that's incredible so todd's wife's tara lipinski uh the 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 famous gold medal winning figure skater uh wonderful um on-air personality too it's amazing todd how did tara take it when when you told her that you had to cut her part from the uh she was she was bummed she was really bummed because we had like different versions of it like one was like wait, that's not Madonna, it's Tara Lipinski. But then uh, in the one we end, ended up winning ESPN, we just like completely <laughs> cut out her face and it was just like cutting away. So there were levels of like, hey, Tara, we're probably not going to use your face or your name. She's bummed about that. And then it was like, oh, ESPN is like, you know, they like it, but, you know, for time we might cut it. So there were kind of levels of disappointment from her. And, you know, I, it would have been so cool to have my wife in a, a 30 for 30 that I directed. Uh, it just didn't happen. So it was okay. One day. One day. Yeah, one speaking, day. speaking, speaking of casting. So I'm curious, how does it work when you're when you're finding the right guy to play the back of Dennis Rodman's head, which is <laughs> obviously prominent throughout the doc? When you bring that person in, how quickly before you turn them around and go, yeah, but let me see the back of your head. Well, so this is so many great things about that. Is one, he was wearing prosthetic ears in the doc um, <laughs> because his ears were like not quite right, like. We went through so many people to try to find, you know, the 26-year-old Dennis um, from behind. I'm blanking on his name who played Dennis. He's such an awesome kid. And he was actually, he was in like this low-level reality show for a while, too, beforehand. I don't even know how we found him. But the nicest kid and was like, you know, pumped to be in a 30 for 30. But it took a while to kind of find 
the back of Dennis's head. And then this kid was like six, five or six, six. So he had, and he had a good build that sort of matched Dennis, but the ears weren't quite right. So we ended up, you know, our makeup person would apply these sort of things on the back of his ears that made him stick out a little bit more. But yeah, that took, people wouldn't, wouldn't think it, but it took a lot of effort to find someone that looked even close to Dennis, um, you know, and, and doing the ears helped out a lot, I think. Brian Walker. I think that's that's what I just looked up. Brian Walker was his name. Brian Walker was the kid who played. We did an infomercial with uh, with Dennis growing like. Oh, it was that? Oh. I, yeah, yeah. That's oh. that's Brian Walker was also really cool. All that yeah. you know, it's fun and out being in LA and you get to do these little bits and meet all these you know cool actors and and mm-hmm. Brian was Brian was awesome. Um, speaking of of your wife, where do the like, where do the Emmys sit? For you, for her, and the gold medals, what's the what's the award set up like in, at your house? Well, what's interesting is we're you know looking for a house in LA, which as people who live here know, it's nearly impossible. But um, she, her, when we get a house, we're gonna hopefully get you know maybe a room to display her gold medal because she hasn't had it. It's in a museum, I think, and wherever the Olympic kind of museum is i want to say it's in salt lake city but i could be making that up but she doesn't have it and she hasn't seen it in a really long time so and we hmm. keep saying you know once we move and have a proper place to kind of display it and it'd be really cool to you know put Emmys somewhere and then have her gold medal there um but yeah she i don't know my emmys are just kind of strewn across our house and then um you know i haven't i haven't i've never seen her gold medal so that's um, wild wow we got to find a house so we can you know display it properly right i mean and she's got more than just the one Olympic gold. I mean, she's, she's got to have floor to ceiling hardware. Yeah, we have, we have a, a case with, she has an awesome collection of, you know, obviously trophies from all her wins and she has, you know, her outfits from when she was four years old and skating and she won her first competition oh, wow. and her first roller skating competition at three <laughs> that she won. We have the outfit from that. So she has some awesome memorabilia. Yeah. Where's the where where's the okay. framed? Uh, I was just gonna say, following up on that, where's the framed uh, People magazine cover of you guys on on the cover <laughs> of, of your wedding day? Yeah, we don't have that framed yet, but that's a that's a fun one too. My head is right next to um, like JFK for some reason. I don't even know what what the story was, but JFK's large head is like right next to my little miniature head in the corner. So that was a fun cover to be on. <laughs> All right, last one for me. What was it like sitting down with Jordan? Oh man, it was, it was cool. I mean, yeah, it was, it was sort of unexplainable because you're so nervous going into that and you're thinking about kind of, I just kept thinking about my childhood, you know, like being so obsessed with Jordan as a player. And then all these years later, kind of getting to sit down as, you know, a journalist or a documentarian to interview him was, you know, really, really thrilling, but it was like a blur because, you know, you get, and he was awesome, but you know, his person comes in and says, dude you got like 17 minutes and oh no now you have 16 minutes and 30 seconds so you better get going and then you just rattle off as many questions Uh as you possibly can in that amount of time and but what what's so funny and interesting about those situations is you know and I understand he's got a million things to do and so he has people that have to be like that but then you know after the interview he kind of just like slumped over in the chair and was just like shooting the shit with us for, yeah like, uh, it drives me nuts yeah, yeah and you're yeah. kind of like well why couldn't we just use this for the interview but then you know now months later and the doc is out and it, it doesn't really matter i'm glad i had those 10 minutes where i was just like 
you know, he's asking me questions about Dennis and about random stuff. And that's more valuable probably than, you know, an extra question or two for, for use in the doc. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was really cool. They did in Jupiter, Florida, where he's, I think he has a place. And um, yeah, it was a pretty thrilling moment. So on a recent knuckleheads podcast, they interviewed uh, Isaiah Thomas and they're talking about Dennis Rodman and as Isaiah is sort of going through his take on, on Rodman and some of the issues he had, Quentin Richardson chimes in and goes, yeah, he also had one of the greatest 30 for 30s there was. And so I'm curious because I know there's been tons of moments like that, certainly when all the buzz, when it hit that first night on Twitter. What were some of the coolest things that happened post-doc, like when it finally gets released, or people you heard from or what have you? What were some of those really just awesome moments for you? Yeah, I got a lot of cool things that people sent me of like, oh, this person, you know, saw the doc and really liked it. I actually happen, I follow Kevin Love on Instagram because I'm a, you know, a Cavs, I'm from Cleveland, obviously, and a Cavs fan and fan of Kevin Love and follow him. And he actually, it was, he was like playing with his, it was weird because he wasn't like paying attention to the doc, but the doc was on his TV. He did like an Instagram story. He's like watching mm-hmm. the rodman doc but then he was kind of like playing with his dog and not watching it so part of me was like oh it's awesome like i just happened to you know click on you know kevin love's story and he's watching the rodman doc but he's also wasn't really paying attention um so i don't know how thrilling that was but it was it, it was cool just to see people kind of reacting um and watching it um especially in the nba because you want you want the sort of seal of approval from nba players obviously and people of that era who who um who liked the doc and, and liked the way it was put together. But, you know, Isaiah was interesting too, because he was in the doc and he got really emotional talking about Dennis. And, you know, I think people, skeptics will say that he was sort of playing for the camera, but, you know, I don't, I don't think he was, I think it was pretty genuine that his care for Dennis. And I think he, he understood that the 26 year old Dennis Rodman who came to the Pistons was not the guy that left the Pistons and was not the mm-hmm. guy who was in San Antonio or, you know, in Chicago. And he probably feels bad that, you know, Dennis, Dennis was who probably Dennis was supposed to be in his early years. And, and, you know, in Detroit, super yeah. endearing guy who just like loved to play basketball and loved, loved, loved the family aspect of, of the Pistons and then just never got that later. And I think, you know, Isaiah knew that and knew that his life sort of spiraled in certain ways because he wasn't with the Pistons and because Isaiah wasn't around. So, um, you know, I think a lot of that emotion was genuine and he was, he was, he was a really good interview. Yeah. Well, you guys did a really good job too, just laying that out, that part of Dennis's life, which I think is awfully tricky explaining like his, his morphing, his, changing of his personality last one todd as we are the rejecting the screen podcast as you know last question for our guests is always one player that you could choose game winning situation life on the line game seven who are you choosing to reject the screen go iso and get a bucket but it can't be jordan oh i mean obi without a doubt not the first one to say that. Certainly won't be the last. I, I will say one thing before we let you go, Todd. I I know, obviously, watched you from the very beginning of your career. I've told you this a bunch, but but because it's public and it'll be out there and because it'll give guys like Raj Shah and the rest of our, our teammates <laughs> in the intramural leagues a chance to bust my balls for it, I, I do want to tell you publicly how proud I am of you and your your ascension and everything. It's been, it's been awesome watching you grow, and um, I'm just very proud of you. Well, I really appreciate that. And, you know, as you know, you've been a very intimate, you know, part of 
part of my career. And there were a lot of nights we were sitting at ESPN at three in the morning talking about, you know, life and, and where we wanted to go. And, and I value those conversations and they've definitely helped me, you know, get to where I am now. So thank you too. Yeah, appreciate it, brother. Todd, thank you. All right, guys. Thanks. Yeah. Todd seems like a really good dude and can tell why you guys have been friends for so long. Yeah, you know, it's funny. For a long time, I've thought, oh, it'd be great for Noah and Todd to meet. Those two would really uh, hit it off, and obviously you guys did. But he's done so much, and we didn't even get into uh, opens for the Super Bowl, uh, a bunch of feature projects for Fox, ESPN, things that have really just been huge hits. I mean, when he met his wife, Tara Lipinski, it was because she was presenting him an Emmy on a night in which I think he had won four or five in one night, wow. literally wow. couldn't. There's pictures of him, but he can't carry them all and because he had won so much. Yeah. yeah, he's a super talented guy, and and uh, obviously I saw that at, at an early age. But I, I've just watched him grow and and develop. But he hasn't changed who he is. So, like I said, I'm I'm awfully proud of him. But it was really cool to hear some of that stuff because we really haven't gone in depth on a lot of you know in our personal conversations on a lot of just that insider stuff about the documentary. It was cool to hear how a lot of it really came about. Yeah, the, the stories that hit the cutting room floor. <laughs> I'm still laughing about Mark Cuban having a hundreds of Dallas Mavericks 69 Rodman jerseys somewhere. And, and you know what's great about that? Could you imagine, like right now, if he were just to put those out retail, they would they would get bought up so quickly. That's insane that he just happens to have those. You know, it's like so what a business great. idea, Shark Tank. He's got uh, a couple hundred thousand Rodman 69 jerseys. Imagine those. Oh, got to uh, get our hands so on one of those. That's amazing. Yeah, that's great. That's great. All right, so make sure you check out everything else going on. The Locked On Podcast Network, Chad Ford, the NBA draft guru, formerly VSPN. He's back on the podcast network here with Chad Ford's big board, also Locked On NBA, Hollinger and Duncan every Monday. The Locked on fantasy hoops with Josh Lloyd as he continues to go through the all-time fantasy team for every single NBA franchise and, of course, your team every day on the Locked On Podcast Network. You can find Adam on Twitter at NaysmithLives. I'm at Noah Koslov, C-O-S-L-O-V, on Instagram at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best. <laughs>